Good afternoon, and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined with Dr. Kenneth Howell, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studio. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that uh, those of you that are returning, that you've been enjoying the Deep in Scripture programs. For those of you that have been following us, we you may have noticed we, we missed last week. Uh, we took a little uh, vacation, in essence, but it was because, for one, Ken, you had a, a death in your family that uh, required you and your family to be uh, especially uh, with your wife because of the passing of her father. Is that right, Ken? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And please, I will ask our audience to pray for his soul and to uh, pray for our family. Okay. And then on the other end of the scale, our one of our uh, producers here uh, had, a, had another boy, baby boy. So, you know, we ask God's blessing on uh, Bill and his new son. And their family, and uh, and I also had kind of a, a family crisis, so or say. So we were out of town. So just uh, <laughs> just felt needed a break. I guess that was the, the will of the Lord. But thank you for joining us. This program again. You can go to the website chnetwork.org or deepinscripture.com to follow us on this program. Because what we wanted to do through this long study of Romans is to examine a couple things. We're looking at how this book is best understood in the appropriate context. We look at each verse in the context of the paragraph in which the Holy Spirit inspired the author to place that verse. We don't take the verse out of context. We also look at that that whole paragraph in the context of the entire book. So we're looking at Romans as an entire document, but also we recognize the correct way to interpret Romans is in the context of the entire Bible. The, the Holy Spirit guided the bishops of the church back in the fourth century to put the entire canon of Scripture together for a purpose. So Roman fits in the entire canon. But we also recognize that Scripture alone is not the correct interpretation, but that Scripture is a part of the wider tradition of the church. And so we understand the book of Romans in the context of the teaching of the teacher that our Lord gave us as the means of receiving his revelation. So, Ken, we're going to look in a moment at Romans chapter 4, 1 through 12, and I'm going to ask you in a moment to put that section in the wider context of, uh, of the book of Romans as well as Scripture. Before we do that, we'd like to grab an email uh, before we get into our discussion, and we received an email from Carolyn, and she writes, Dear Marcus and Ken, I regularly post comments on a discussion site on the internet which has a lot of Bible-only Christians. One of the things I notice with this group is, is they go to the Old Testament a lot and the epistles, but seem to ignore the Gospels and any parts of the epistles that don't jive with their thinking. And she says, like most of James. Any helps you can give me will be appreciated. As when I post, I try to write for those who may happen upon the conversation who may or may not be Bible believers. Thank you, Carolyn. And Carolyn, uh, thank you for this question and comment uh, because it rings true 
I must admit to my past, when I was a Presbyterian pastor, an evangelical Presbyterian pastor, of course, an evangelical for the first 40 years of my life, and when I began to look back, even though I believed in Scripture alone and then the infallibility of Scripture, and of Christ, of course, Christ as my Lord and Savior, I, as I looked back, I recognized this same flaw in my own uh, treatment of Scripture. And <clears throat> Ken, you know, my explanation of that is, which connects very much of what we're looking at in this section in Romans, is that my understanding of Luther's and Calvin's emphasis on faith versus works, faith alone versus works, made me, as well as most Protestants, a bit uncomfortable with so many of the sayings of our Lord Jesus. Because he emphasizes, especially, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, our call to holiness and perfection, our call to to do works of mercy and love. We see that in chapter 6 of Matthew, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, when he calls us to give alms, uh, and how important that is in relationship to the rewards we will have in heaven. So that didn't really jive with my particular Calvinist interpretation. And so generally, uh, a fair large percent of non-Catholic Christians see Christianity through their understanding of Paul and primarily through the Pauline epistles and then through their particular understanding of Paul's dichotomy between a life trying to earn God's love through works versus a complete surrender to God through faith alone, Luther's interpretation, then that grid is used to select from the Gospels as well as the other epistles and the Old Testament which verses then fit and which ones to ignore. And sometimes I've jokingly said that in reality my old, I almost downplayed the entire Old Testament except those verses that dealt with tithing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a. Uh, I, I think Carolyn's question is uh, is very insightful, and she I think has perceived correctly what the tendency is, especially as you move more toward the uh, Bible only fundamentalist Christians. Um, but it's not only that they they don't necessarily take seriously all of the sayings of our Lord. Uh, I think they, I think they actually get Paul incorrectly. And by that I mean, I think they misunderstand Paul uh, in Romans and Galatians when he's arguing for justification by faith. They don't put that into the context of all that Paul says, even in Galatians or Romans, as well as the other epistles, um, where where he talks about the rewards of faith. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, where he talks about that he... Uh, even if he runs the race, he might in the end be be rejected by God. And they always interpret that as having to do with rewards, not salvation. But there's no justification given for that, for that interpretation. Um, and she asked for help. And this is a difficult thing because I think what you're pointing out is that people get locked into a certain way of thinking and it's really difficult 
to shake them out of it. Thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit shook me out of my yeah, complacency and uh, and brought me to see. Um, the real key is to do what she is really implying here already, is to bring up those verses, but not necessarily as a hammer to, to hammer people over with. Bring up those verses which suggest something different, which point us in a different direction, and then ask those people to explain those verses. Now, I'll give you an, a concrete example. One of my former students, when I was teaching at a Presbyterian seminary, one of my after I left the seminary and had become Catholic, one of my former students actually asked me to preach the sermon as an ordination as a Presbyterian minister. Um, and I don't think that he realized that I had become Catholic at the point. <laughs> but when I, when I went there, I asked the question, when you get to heaven, what is God going to ask you? Is he going to say, is he going to say, why should you into my heaven? What answer will you give? Now, anybody who knows the evangelism explosion method of evangelization knows that question, what is God going to ask you? And then you're supposed to say, well, I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. And yet, I, so I pointed them to Matthew 25, and Matthew 25, I said, what's Jesus going to ask you when you get to heaven? And he's going to say, did you feed the poor? Did you visit the prisoners? Did you help those? And that's what he says in Matthew 25, is, is the basis for entering into the kingdom of God. You won't believe the, the negative response that I got from people, <laughs> as if I was emphasizing words. I said, well, take it up with Jesus. You know, he's, he's the one who said this, you know. So asking those uh, maybe difficult questions, but questions about the text which point us in a, in a different direction, different than the ones that are that people are suggesting by their uh, by their work. There. In my little yeah. book, what must I do to be saved? Uh, I I deal with this in a chapter on the Roman road, and I talk about what. Lutherans and Calvinists and evangelicals have had to do to understand where to put the words of our Lord, like you mentioned in Matthew. And what they end up doing is they interpret Romans, of all books, in a quite a, a way quite a bit differently than you and I do, Ken, or than the church has, or the, Augustine and others did. And, and they want to divide the book of Romans up into two parts— and there's part A, which are, was, they say, the way it used to be before the cross. And that was that you earned your way to heaven by doing works. And so they would place Jesus' teachings, his Sermon on the Mount, statements like you mentioned, Ken, in plan A, before. Mm -hmm. And they almost imply that our Lord was being... A, a bit dishonest in laying before the Jewish audience answers to salvation that can't work, that they can't do. Mm -hmm. He was placing, as Jesus was critical of the Pharisees, they're claiming Jesus was just as, as wrong. Jesus said the Pharisees were putting burdens on people's backs that they couldn't handle themselves. Well, they're saying that Jesus was doing the same thing. He, he was putting expectations that these people could not do before the cross. But plan B is after the cross, then we just yeah. look at Jesus and we're saved. And it doesn't matter what we do. 
And that grid that they then put on Romans, for example, Romans 7, where Paul says, I've, they make sure that they imply that Romans 7 is not Paul looking at how he is now, struggling as a yeah. Christian, but how he used to be when he tried to earn his way to God, which is not the context of Romans. No, that's right. Well, the um, what you just described there was a very prominent view in dispensationalism, which had a very had its heyday. Well, certainly in the nineteen seventies and the nineteen eighties, with Hal Lindsey and the Great Late Great Planet Earth, a book that sold, you know, at least a million, maybe a couple of million copies, and it became very influential. But that grid about two different methods of salvation. Um, the Reformed and, and the Lutheran, I think, too, always felt there was a, more of a continuity between the Old and the New Testament. But uh, nevertheless, I, I think they, the difficulty is that they didn't take fully the idea that uh, there will be judgment according to works, even in the New Testament, as we saw in chapter 2 of Romans. Yeah, for me, the key, and this came to my own, in my own journey to the church, was recognizing that it wasn't this alternative understanding that of Paul that becomes the grid for all of the New Testament and Old Testament. Yeah, mm-hmm. The key is the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew builds the entire Gospel of Matthew around the Sermon on the Mount, the new law. And that a correct understanding of Paul must be a recognition of what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, because Paul would never dream of having contradicted our Lord Jesus. And so, yeah. as we look at Romans chapter 4, if we're going to look at works and faith and righteousness and Abraham and being justified by works, we have to recognize it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. They have to be seamless. Otherwise, we are putting our own uh, prejudices in, mm-hmm. into Scripture and looking at Scripture through the prejudices of our own preconceived theologies. Yeah, because the underlying question of Romans 4, as we've had in the past here, is who is Abraham the father of? Is he the father just of Jews, or is he also the father of Gentiles? Excellent. Ken, before we jump into Romans 4... Put it in the context, if you would, of our study so far and and in the entire book of Romans. Well, remember that uh, several weeks ago we were talking about the the fact that Romans is a bit of a puzzle to scholars who uh, have posed the question, well, is if Romans is a letter written to a church of Gentiles, why is there so much about the law and Judaism and so forth in there? And I think the simple answer is that it wasn't the church in Rome probably wasn't just Gentiles. It was also Jews. And so Paul is trying to address the question of why, um, of how a faith uh, plays into uh, ultimately salvation and justification. But that raises the question of what, what the status of Abraham is. And that's the question that he is posing at the beginning of chapter 4. Now, why is he, why, is he, why does he ask the question at the beginning of chapter 4, then what shall we say about Abraham, our father according to the faith? How was he justified? Well, this is all against the background that Paul has concluded in chapter 3, 
that all are under sin. Remember that if you go back to chapter 3, he says in verse 19 that the, that all are, that every mouth is shut and that God is, uh, is accountable to the entire world. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, are under the reign of sin because of our fallen nature. And what is that fallen nature? Well, he told us that back in chapter twenty, uh, chapter three, verse twenty-three, when he said that all have sinned, and and in this next translation, the traditional Protestant translation is, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And I've suggested in ver- that verse twenty-three, the Greek word hustereo can mean that they are lacking in the glory of God. That is the glory of God that was in the human soul in the original creation, has now been removed, as it were. And that's the judgment, is that man no longer has the glory of God. He's deprived of the glory of God. That is the presence of God. And that that's what it means to be in a state of sin, is that one is deprived of that glory. Justification, then, or righteousness, or returning to that state of Eden, is a matter of receiving the righteousness, the glory of God again in the human soul. And that can only, Paul is declaring that that only takes place through Christ, the Messiah of Israel, and that the only way to get to Christ is through faith that works itself out in love. Now, the Jewish tendency is going to be always to say, but wait a minute, Abraham is our father. He's the father of Jews. And but Paul's argument throughout, Galatians, throughout Romans and Galatians, by the way, is that the answer is that no, Abraham is not just the father of Jews. He might be physically the father of Jews, but he's really, in, God's intention was to make him the forefather of all believers, of all the faithful. Now, the point he's making here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, which is our text for today, is that what shows this is the state in which Abraham is justified. He was justified not in a state of circumcision, but even before he was circumcised. Yeah, the uh, couple things, Ken, that come to mind as you're describing that. First of all, and I have a feeling you're going to be able to... um, talk more about this than me, being the academic that you are, that it kind of reminds me of an emphasis that St. Bonaventure, in his philosophy, when you talked about the glory of God being lost in man in the fall, that it seemed that St. Bonaventure and others made an emphasis on on light, on the presence of light as the... As the, as, as the essence of God and his creative act and his presence in the world and in our hearts. And it made me think mm-hmm. about John 1 when he writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That the light of God's presence within Adam and Eve was darkened. And so darkness is an absence of light. It's not another quality. It's an absence of light. Right. And so it isn't that man became totally dark, but that the light of God's presence still shines down deep within the imago Dei, the image of God in our soul. It's still there. 
it's still yes. there, but it's been clouded, uh, darkened by our sinfulness, but it can be rejuvenated through the indwelling mm-hmm. of Christ, especially, particularly through the sacraments. And so the light shines in the darkness. And mm-hmm. so you see all of this, especially in, the, in all the letters of John, this emphasis on letting our light shine and, and letting our light shine before men. That's not our light, but it's the light of God's glory shining through us. And there's so you, you're absolutely right, and especially for example in the Greek fathers, um, you see this that baptism is a sacrament of enlightenment, that it 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 brings the light of God into the soul, and ultimately the beatific vision with God is a gift. I stress that a gift of God's enlightening life. So when God comes into the soul, He brings enlightenment, and it's amazing to me, especially as a academic for so many years, how dark can be the minds of many academics. <laughs> They're supposedly brilliant people, uh, you know, they have advanced degrees and all that. And yet, when you see their their judgments about things, you say, wow, how dark is this, this person's mind? Uh, whereas people that may not be as educated, and yet who have been enlightened by grace, can see things very clearly often. Um, I used to use my illustration in one of my classes, you know, I used to say, Uncle Billy goes to Chicago. Uncle Billy lives down in southern Illinois, and uh, he uh, he's a farmer, and he doesn't. He doesn't know much like those big country, like those big city folk. But, you know, country, uh, Uncle Billy, he really knows the difference between male and female. He knows what a male pig is and a female pig. <laughs> or He knows a lot. In other words, you have this quality about people who live in the simplicity of God's presence that they can see things clearly. St. Augustine talks about this. We may want to refer our readers here to the wonderful uh, book of self, uh, uh, the autobiography of St. Augustine in the Confessions, especially in book 7, chapter 10, where he talks about this very thing that you're talking about, Marcus, where he talks about how he began to read and he began to go deeper than his soul and he saw a light there, a light that was far greater than any created light. And that light was the light of God. So God illumines us. Oh, we may have, looks like we've had a glitch in uh, Ken. We'll get you back online. Let me just pick up on there what you were saying, Ken. This issue of light, I think, makes the clarification of what we're talking about in this very context. If we're only looking at faith versus works, then the idea of getting right with God is through doing the right things, somehow earning God's right. We're missing the point of the deeper context, and that is as, as re-experiencing the glory of God, his light in our soul. Mm-hmm. And so faith is opening ourselves up to the reality of God and therefore recognizing our darkness and then his light coming in to change us, which then changes all that we are, not just our mind, but all that we are so that our actions and our love and our uh, self-centered, all this changes. That's the real context of what Paul's trying to get into and people away from 
this idea that I did these things, therefore I'm right with God. No, he's saying that's the problem. But the other extreme of faith alone, I don't have to worry about what I'm doing, is the other extreme. And he deals with this in this context. And Kim, glad to have you back. You know, the thing that, just before we get into this text, later in Romans, Paul says, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, and the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The image of light changing the way we live, the way we believe, the way we love, the way we change. That is the context of what Paul is trying to get through to his hearers in Rome. And it also strikes me, Ken, that here we're looking at this passage, as you said. And Paul's writing to these people he didn't know. And it's... It, it, I find it interesting that we're doing this passage in the context of the the mass readings for the next two Sundays deal with Jesus anticipating conflicts in the church of people who, you know, they're his followers, they may believe in him, they may have faith in him, but their lives haven't changed. For example, the, the, the gospel reading is coming up about the, uh, the workers in the vineyard, some went early, some went late, but they got paid the same. Mm-hmm. And so you've got people saying, you know, complaining about, wait, we were here first. You yeah. guys are latecomers. Well, that's the Jews and the Gentiles that Paul's dealing with in Romans. Absolutely. You know, those that said, we've always been a part of it. Who are you newcomers? Why should you, Lord, there's something wrong with this. Why should these Gentiles be receiving mm-hmm. the fullness of the salvation? We've had Abraham. We've got the law. Yeah. We've got the tradition. Yeah, exactly. Jesus knew that this would be a problem in the church. And then next Sunday, after that, is the place where the two brothers, one said, I'll do it, then he doesn't. The other says, I'm not going to do it, then he does. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so we have people in the church that are changing, that are repenting, that are discovering the light, that are realizing that faith is a deeper change of our whole lives. This is the context Paul is writing to but he's dealing with stubborn people, mm-hmm. stubborn people. Well, there's so many implications of what you're saying there, Marcus. I think that one of them is, and I've seen this in, in, in the Catholic parishes. I've seen it in, in Protestant churches, and you see it in businesses. Everything. People forget what the purpose of an organization is. Right, very easily. So you can get into the specifics, but you forget that it's exactly the goal of what you're talking about. The purpose of the church is to bring people to that holiness, to let them be filled with the grace of God so that they can be in heaven. Excellent, Ken. Thank you very much. Let's take a break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture with Marcus Grodi and Kenneth Howell, and we'll be with you in just a moment. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, 
I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi with Dr. Kenneth Hall. We're looking at Romans chapter 4, 1 through 12. And Ken, I think what I'd like to suggest that we do, again, the audience, uh, I'm assuming if you are following along that you've got scriptures in front of you, you can go to the website, deepinscripture.com, and you can look at our, our planning sheet that we use here. Let's look at this, Ken, in, uh, in little segments. And uh, the, first, the first three verses uh, set the stage for the issue that Paul's dealing with. Because he says in verse 1, What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Ken, I'm wondering if, if St. Paul was already dealing this early with the, um, uh, the very struggle that arose later in the Reformation, and that is trying to understand works versus faith and how do works play out in our, uh, our relationship with God, how important are they, uh, because maybe the Jews and the Gentiles there, the Jew and Gentile Christians, were getting a bit on each other's nerves about how to interpret, moving on in the Christian faith, how much of the Jewish works of the law they had to bring with them. And so they were already struggling with the theology of it. Well, I think that you're right, because the issue of uh, salvation, the roles of faith and works and all of that, um, is, it didn't just arise in the, it didn't rise just in the 16th century in the Reformation. And in fact, the whole Pelagian controversy of the early 5th century with St. Augustine and Pelagius, um, that clearly shows that the, the it's a perennial problem. Now, some of our listeners may not realize what Pelagianism is, but the Catholic Church roundly condemns Pelagianism. Now, Pelagius was a British monk 
who came to Rome in the early 5th century. And St. Augustine was the, um, was the Bishop of Hippo down in North Africa. And he came to Rome and he started preaching basically that Jesus Christ is a great example of holiness. What we have to do is to work hard enough in imitating him and then we can be saved. St. Augustine, way down, hearing about this way down in Hippo in North Africa, begins to preach against this and comes back to Paul to say, no, we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by God's grace through faith that issues forth in works. But And, and St. Augustine pointed us to that. So on the one hand, the church condemns... Um, Rightly so, Pelagianism, that is the idea that we can save ourselves. The technical word is autosoterism, self-salvation. We cannot save ourselves. That's why Christ came into the world. That's why he gave us the church. That's why he gave us the sacraments. All as a gift because we cannot save ourselves. So that's the one extreme. And this is important, too, because many of our Protestant friends misunderstand the Catholic Church. They think the Catholic Church is teaching that we're saved by our works. But it's not teaching that. It, we can never be saved by our works. We can't even have to be saved by our works. It's all an act of God's grace that he gives us these gifts. But what gifts does he give us? Well, he gives us the gift of faith and baptism. He gives us the sacraments. He gives us the church. And sadly, there are Catholics, and let's say poor catechized Catholics, that have misinterpreted the, quote, laws of the church, unquote, to think that if they've done these things, then they've arrived. And the church is constantly reminding Catholics that that's not true. That, yeah, you know, yeah. and this, this opening context is a few things here, Ken, that I think are really important to look at. Uh, when Paul says, what shall we say about Abraham, our father according to the flesh? I could almost imagine a Jewish Christian listener uh, you know, raising his eyebrows because, you know, to what extent can the Gentile Christians call Abraham their father? Well, right. on the one hand, he is indeed the father of the flesh of Jews specifically, but we also recognize when we see the Christian faith as the continuity of the faith of Abraham that he is in the flesh our forefather, just as Abraham, mm -hmm. Isaac, and Jacob David, Solomon, all of these are in the flesh real brothers mm -hmm. and sisters. When you look at the uh, genealogy of Jesus in the beginning of Matthew, brothers and yeah. sisters in the faith. And the verses 2 and 3, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Again, when I was a, a Protestant I, and a Calvinist, I took that to therefore be the argument that it was his faith alone. In fact, my study Bible even, my Protestant study Bible even has as a title, Faith Alone. But what I didn't recognize is that this quote comes from Genesis chapter 15, Mm -hmm. which follows Genesis chapter 12, of course. But what do we read in Genesis chapter 12? 
We see it said, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. So there we see the oath that God makes to Abraham promising that he will be the father of all. But a part of that was for the command for Abraham to go. And then verse 4 of Genesis 12 says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So the point is that when Moses was writing in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness, the proof <laughs> of Abraham's belief in God, the very belief was that he went, that he acted. In other words, he Mm. did something. If Abraham had merely believed God and stayed in Ur, he would not have been obedient to God. His faith Mm. would not have been that which would have reckoned to him any kind of righteousness because faith and works, as James will later say, go together. Well, and also if you read in chapter uh, 15 of Genesis, that text of that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness is preceded by this, when God is taking Abraham outside and he says, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, he said, so shall your descendants be. Now think about that for just a moment. Here's Abraham childless. And he's even recommending, he's saying to God, take Eliezer's Damascus as my heir, and that'll be, you know, good enough. In other words, what is God saying to him? He's saying, I'm going to take you step by step, and I'm going to lead you to do what I want you to do. You're going to be the father of many nations. And then it says, Abraham believed God. In other words, <coughs> in other words, God said to him, this is what I want you to become. And he believed in and that is the path of righteousness that he's going to start walking on because of that. So the righteousness is a step, first step in the process. Now, some might say, wait, you guys are then contradicting verse 2, because it says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And we have to make the correction to understand that when Paul uses works specifically, it needs to be understood in the context of all of Romans in which his use of works, as well as other epistles, is that he's referring to works of the law. In other words, circumcision, which makes sense that Abraham had not received the order from God to be circumcised before Mm. this declaration in Genesis 15. This comes later, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Paul's leaving, I mean, excuse me, Abraham's leaving of Ur was an expression, was a seamless expression of his faith in God. If he believed God, he would act. And that's all that we Catholics believe, that faith and works go together. If we believe in God, then our lives should show it. If our lives don't show it, then the question is, do we believe? Because they should Mm. be seamless. 
Well, another way of clarifying that relationship between works of the law and the works of faith is that what Protestants misunderstand us as teaching, they think that we believe that works of the law and the works of that come from faith in Christ are the same thing. In other words, one's just a just an extension of the other. But what what Paul's arguing again, and therefore what we believe is contradicts what Paul says according to their thinking. But they misunderstand, and I think they misunderstand not only us, but Paul. Paul here's contrasting between the works of the law, that is this done as Pelagius had suggested on our own effort and our own, and then we would have something to boast, but it wouldn't be from God. But what we believe is that that the works of the law are like circumcision and so forth. Those are the things that are no longer relevant. What's relevant is the works of faith. But they're works still in the sense of, as you just explained, as a natural response to God's promise and an outworking of his grace within our lives. That's the works of faith which we must have, without which we cannot be saved. And, of course, our Lord spoke about those kinds of works, as I mentioned earlier, in his Sermon on the Mount when he talks about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. if through authentic prayer... Heartfelt prayer, uh, authentic fasting, authentic mm-hmm. almsgiving. He talks about receiving rewards in heaven. That's, that's right, yeah. If we're doing prayer and fasting and almsgiving for the wrong reasons, because we're trying to earn the respect of people around us, we're trying to demonstrate our righteousness, Jesus says, that's your reward. You've got your reward as, or as he, Paul may say, if it's something to boast about because of what you've done but not before God, because you will not receive the rewards of that from our Lord. But if done in gratitude as expression of our faith, uh, as a concrete expression of our faith, then our Lord promises that there will be, be rewards if by grace we spend eternity with him. You know, Ken, verses 4 and 5 are are crucial, I think, to understanding the context of Paul because they can be misunderstood. And it seems to me that the key is that verse 4 and verse 5, Paul gives two extremes, both of which can be misinterpreted. Uh, But he uses these extremes to express the truth of what he's trying to get to. Verse 4, Now to one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. That's one extreme. The other extreme is, And to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Mm. Yeah. Because... uh, that second verse particularly. Well, the first verse, it seems to me, really clarifies why trying to earn God's reward, if that's the motive, in in a sense Mm -hmm. that if I do something, therefore God owes it to me, that is a completely wrong understanding of our Christian life. And that's what he's getting at um, in the misunderstanding of works. On the other hand, verse 5 has been so misinterpreted by faith alone folk because uh, it's used, and Luther used it, 
when Luther said he could commit adultery 10,000 times in a day and not lose his salvation, that to one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness, as if that's a model, but Paul is really getting at there, is the other extreme of someone who's lost in sin, who has done nothing to please God at all, who's lived a life completely apart from God, yet in the midst of that, turns to God in faith, then God will respond to that person's call to faith because of God's righteousness. Well, and exactly like the thief on the cross, right? Because he he couldn't do any uh, works, uh, so he simply begged for mercy. And that's what Paul, I think, is talking about here, that it's the one who believes on the one who justifies the ungodly is the one who is trusting in the mercy of God, ultimately, which is ultimately the source. Now, there's also an interesting point here, too. In the version, and in most of the English versions of which we have it, verse 5 reads, as you read, in the, to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now, a lot of people read that as that the faith sort of takes the place of the righteous. In other words, God accepts the faith as if it were the righteousness. But a little bit more literal reading from the Greek is that it's eis dikaiosunein, which is in Latin ad justitiam. In other words, his faith is reckoned for righteousness, meaning leading to righteousness. It isn't that the faith is the righteousness, but the faith leads to the righteousness. And in other words, even if a person doesn't work like the thief on the cross, even if he doesn't have any good deeds to offer, that faith that he has in God eventually leads to that righteousness. It is not the righteousness itself. It simply leads to the righteousness. There are many places in Scripture where we see examples of of people whose lives are t- totally a scandal, who are have lived lives apart from God, but then by grace they awaken to that and turn back. Mm. Right. And they've done nothing to earn God's forgiveness, but it is in the turning back to God that they receive mercy. And of course, the best example of that is the prodigal son. But but the reason that, it, to me, it demonstrates that this is exactly what Paul is talking about, verse 5, is because he follows it up with verses 6 through 8, in which he is quoting a psalm, mm-hmm. In which he says, so also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. In other words, God reckons forgiveness and righteousness to a person who has lived completely apart from him and yet turns and seeks forgiveness. In verse 7, he quotes the psalm, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. That's like the father and the prodigal son. The son has Mm -hmm. done no works, quote, to justify the father's forgiveness. The only thing he's done is turn from his wicked way and come home. And and he's forgiven. And that's the context Mm -hmm. of someone that does not therefore... Paul's not trying to say, therefore, it's all right to live a life without any kind of goodness, without works, without love, without care. Mm-hmm. 
and just mm -hmm. trust that in the end, God's going to uh, forgive you because you had faith in him. That is not what he's trying to justify in this context. Well, that that's right. And, you know, if you go back and read Psalm 32 from where the quotation that you read from, you know, blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. Um, if you read Psalm 32 carefully, first you'll notice that it is written by David. Well, David is also the author of Psalm 51, in which he, realizing his sin in adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, Uriah, he falls before God and simply says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He says, God, cleanse me of my sin. Take away my iniquity. In other words, this is the work, quote-unquote, that God wants to see. It's a humble heart. Now, we ask ourselves the question, how could a simple plea for forgiveness be sufficient? Shouldn't God, a God of justice, say, okay, you do these ten things and then you'll be forgiven, right? Is that what? And the reason that a simple plea for mercy and of true contrition of heart is sufficient is precisely because of what God is interested in. He's not interested in our works. Our works can't do anything to help him. What he's interested in is a, is a restoration of the relationship. We fell out of that relationship of love and service and reverence of God. He wants to bring us back to that. And that's what contrition does. It brings us back into this relationship with God. And the way that takes place is by his forgiving our iniquities when we turn to him. So in that sense, verses 4 and 5, the two extremes, he is not, he's trying to address our attitude, not trying to earn God's love. Right. Or on the other hand, take it for granted, presumptuous. I believe in God, therefore it doesn't matter how I live. That's the other extreme. No, neither are correct. It all involves a surrender to God. And it seems to me the absolute key to, to this whole passage is verse 9. Because Paul says all of a sudden, is this blessing pronounced only upon the circumcised or also upon the uncircumcised? And some might say, wait a second, we're, why is he dropping this I issue into this context? He's talking about works and and faith and righteousness. Mm -hmm. What's the issue of circumcised versus uncircumcised? And that's specifically because in his mind, when he's talking about works, this is the question that he's addressing. Yes. Well, that, that's right, because the, the sign of circumcision becomes the pride or the boast of the Jew to say, ah, you see, we're children of Abraham. We have, we are those who are. And Paul doesn't deny, by the way, that there's uniqueness to being Jewish. Uh, he talks about that later in the book. But what he wants to make the verses 9 through 12 is that Abraham himself was was justified, was placed on the path of righteousness and living for God when he was in an uncircumcised state. And by implication, what he's saying is the Gentiles are co-heirs, as he will say in Ephesians. They're co-heirs with the Jews in the kingdom of God. In other words, that Roman pagan who believes in Jesus Christ is just as much a child of Abraham as the Jew is. And that's the point he's making about Abraham here. The father, that Abraham is not only the father of the circumcised, but also 
of the uncircumcised. So you and I, coming from pagan backgrounds, at least I presume you came from a pagan background. I certainly did. You know, my father, my, my forefathers were all Celts. I mean, I'm as thoroughly Celtic as you can get. And you know what we were? We were tree worshipers. We were pagans. And we lived like pagans. But thanks be to God, Patrick and other missionaries came to the, the, the Britain and the Isle, Irish Isles. To, and we became children of Abraham by faith in God. Which is exactly what Paul meant in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. The, his point was that these pagans were brought out of their paganism not because they did good, some kind of good works while they were pagans or that they were circumcised right. while they were pagans, but by grace God opened their hearts while they were still pagans so that they would turn to him and come back. Grace brought them out of their paganism into the family of God, the church. we got just a couple minutes, Ken. I want to clarify one thing, and I think it's important, verse 10 and 11, where Paul says, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. But then verse 11, he received circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness with, which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. People take that verse to, from a Baptist perspective. If we're replacing circumcision with baptism, therefore baptism is nothing more than a seal of the adult faith that we have. But that's not really understanding this in the fuller context of Scripture. Well, that's right, because, uh, and it's true that a pagan who came in as an adult uh, doesn't come in being baptized. They come in and they trust in Christ, like on the day of Pentecost. They trust in Christ. They receive this Holy Spirit, both at that moment and in a fuller way, in baptism, so that baptism follows the act of faith. However, if we make, if we believe that the parallel between circumcision and baptism is legitimate, then what we also see in the case of Abraham is that not only was he circumcised, but the infant boys in his family were circumcised as well. So that circumcision is given to the young, and so baptism is, in the New Covenant, given to the young. Its grace is given. Baptism then becomes not only the seal or the sign of faith, but it becomes the instrument of grace in a person's life. Yeah, in the same way that circumcision brought an adult or a child into the family of God so that they could therefore receive the graces of being a part of the family. That's right. Baptism yeah. does the same for an adult or a child. They are then a part of the family. They are justified. They, are, they can receive the graces. But in the same way that circumcision, though, those, though the sign of circumcision and baptism, neither can be wiped away, yet they can be turned from. A Jew could turn from his circumcision, yes. just like we Christians could turn away from our baptism. Well, we need to end there. Ken, thanks for joining us again today. Uh, as always, appreciate your wisdom, and thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. Look forward to joining you again next week.